It's the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast. City to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the World Wide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Monday morning. Welcome in to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here for the next two hours as we roll along till 11 a.m. Eastern. It was kind of for the first time, really all fall, a very fall-like weekend, right? Still kind of warm here, at least on Long Island where I've been, but all of a sudden, overnight, cold temperatures, some wind, some leaves on the ground. Leaf season, unfortunately, is officially here. And we saw yesterday, at least, whether it was in Green Bay, where some you had some snow and some snow flurries during the game, or a few other locales around the NFL, fall football weather is here. And usually what that means, right, when you get some cold temperatures, some snow in the air, that means now we are moving into a time where important football is being played and where some teams need some big wins and some teams suffer some very important and catastrophic losses. And I think we saw that to start or really to finish week number 10 here in the NFL. So we'll discuss all of that here for the next two hours. Should there be concern about the Buccaneers, right? They lose their second game in a row. Should we be worried? Should there be concern? We'll dive into that. I thought yesterday both the Packers and Chargers, their defenses specifically, sent some mixed messages here about their playoff contention and what to look at for them going forward. In college football, it was <laughs> a very college football-like weekend. Starting with Dan Mullen kind of sweating it out against Samford, and it really concluded with Steve Sarkeesian losing an improbable game to Kansas. Should both of those coaches be on the hot seat? We have that, all of that, and more. Got you covered here on the Worldwide Sports right now through the next two hours. We are coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios, where it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners. Make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. Well, let's start right here with the biggest story, I think, of week number 10. With the best performance that I thought we saw in week number 10. And that was the Kansas City Chiefs. I thought last night, playing in front of the nation on Sunday Night Football, Kansas City made a statement to the rest of the conference that guess what? The kings of the AFC are far from dead. What's the, what's the phrase we always talk about? What's the phrase we always hear? In order to be the best... You have to beat the best. And honestly, right, in the AFC, that phrase didn't really apply. The Chiefs, right, were the reigning champs of the AFC the last two years, going to the Super Bowl in 2019 and winning, going to the Super Bowl in 2020 and losing. So whether it was the Titans, whether it's the Bills, the Chargers, you name it, whatever team you thought had a good chance to go to the Super Bowl out of the AFC, usually conventional wisdom would tell you, well, they got to go through the Chiefs. This year so far, though, that kind of question or, or that phrase was thrown out the window because the Chiefs for a, a month now have kind of stunk it up, have really struggled, have been unable to find it and figure it out on offense. Their defense has not done much to help them out either. 
But guess what? I think all those questions we had about Kansas City, all of those doubts cast on the Chiefs and their offense and Patrick Holmes and Andy Reid and that horrible defense, you can throw all of those questions out the window. Because last night, the champs showed you they are back. Kansas City has figured out their offensive woes, and that is bad news for everyone else in the AFC. So before I explain why, before I explain my confidence, I want to start by asking you this question. Why didn't we learn our lesson already? Why didn't we use the Patriots as the example here? And why didn't we kind of know better than to cast doubt on the Chiefs? Right? Because how many times, how many years in a row was a different media pundit, different fans saying, oh, the Patriots, their dynasty is dead. One loss in, in week four, all of a sudden, next to Tom Brady stinks. He's washed up. Bill Belichick can't coach. The Patriots dynasty is over. As we know, for two decades, New England ran the AFC. And every time it felt like there was doubts, there was questions. Oh, the Patriots are really that good. Tom Brady, does he still have it? Are we sure the Patriots, are they really the team to be in the AFC? What happens? They're in another AFC title game. They're in the Super Bowl. They're winning another Super Bowl. Every single time I feel like the Patriots were declared dead, that is when they played their best football. And we are seeing the same thing happen now with the Kansas City Chiefs. Right, this is the team. In three full seasons with Patrick Holmes as the starter. Right, Their first year, they went to the AFC title game, went to overtime with the Patriots before losing that game. Following year 2019, go to the Super Bowl and win. Following year after that, this past year in 2020, go to the Super Bowl and lose. So do you really think in three full seasons with Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid as the battery there, head coach and quarterback, do we really think that those three years where they, again, went to the AFC title game, back-to-back Super Bowls, that all of a sudden this year they forgot how to play football? They forgot how to coach? Patrick Mahomes forgot how to throw the football or read coverages or, or find Travis Kelsey or, or know what he's doing? Like the, the doubts and the questions about Kansas City to me was confusing. Because Andy Reid is still an all-time great coach, and Patrick Holmes is still a great quarterback. So sure, they went through a rough patch for about a month or so offensively, especially. But really, was there doubts about whether they would figure it out? These guys are not dummies. And we, I think, saw yesterday the culmination of, guess what? These guys are not dead. They know what they're doing. It takes time. Changes do take time in season. But it looks to me like the Chiefs have finally figured it out. They just showed us. They showed everyone. They showed the Raiders, their in-division rival. I think everyone else in the AFC on Sunday night, that it's going to take a, more, you know, a lot more than just one bad month of football to be able to dethrone the kings and the champs of the conference. Like you watch last night's game, then you look at the stat line, and you see Patrick Holmes. 35 for 50 for 406 yards and five touchdowns on Sunday night. Zero interceptions, by the way, as he was kind of giving out picks left around like candy recently. But guess what? It's not an accident because the adjustments were finally made. After kind of banging their head against the wall for it felt like a month, where they kept doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, they finally learned how to beat the defenses that are being played against them. And that is simple. We told you this on the show a month ago. The changes for the Chiefs are very simple. It's about what? Being patient, taking what the defense gives you, not trying to do too much, 
And guess what? We finally saw that happen yesterday, and it worked out perfectly. Patrick Holmes finally just started settling for what the Las Vegas defense would give him. And it worked to the two, like we just mentioned, of 406 yards, five touchdowns, and 41 points. It's a simple fix. And Kansas City finally found it out. Because what every team has been doing so far this year for the Chiefs has been playing prevent defense. No one's blitzing. They're dropping seven, eight guys back in coverage. They're basically saying, you're not beating us over the top. You're going to have to beat us by going on eight, 10, 12 play drives. We are not allowing this explosive Chiefs offense to get loose. We're not allowing Tyreek Hill to go one-on-one and go deep. We're not allowing Travis Kelsey to get loose deep in the middle of the field. We're going to force everything and keep it all in front of us. And it's up to you to be patient and disciplined enough to take that every single time. And guess what? That finally happened, right? After what felt like, again, the definition of insanity as the Chiefs tried to continue to push the ball down the field this last month with no luck. They were paying for it big time with turnovers and low point totals. They finally were able to figure it out. Because guess what? Patrick Holmes started checking the ball down. Threw it underneath. Travis Kelsey had a field day. He didn't really run any deep routes. Those routes, three, four yards away from the uh, line of scrimmage, worked out perfectly. He had eight catches for 119 yards. A ton of yards after the catch in part because that's where Travis Kelsey's at his best, right? Give him the ball and let him run. He's an athletic freak tight end. He's fast. He's big. He's strong. So now the Chiefs just said, you know what, fine, you want to keep dropping guys? We're just going to throw it underneath and let Travis Kelsey run. Good luck tackling him. It took a month for them to finally kind of figure it out and get it going, but it worked to perfection last night. But I thought even more important than just Travis Kelsey kind of get going, where we really saw the growth of Patrick Holmes and this Chiefs offense yesterday was Darrell Williams. And not Darrell Williams are running back, running the ball, because he didn't have a ton of success. But I thought his stat line receiving the ball was truly where you see change made. Darrell Williams, again, a running back. Nine catches yesterday for 101 yards and a touchdown. That was Patrick Mahomes' safety valve, his outlet pass. And again, in weeks past, whether it was against the Giants, whether it was against the Packers, the Titans, we kept seeing Mahomes force the ball into double coverage, into triple coverage, trying to force big plays to happen when they weren't there. This week... When we were telling you, patience, take what the defense gives you. Mahomes finally did that. They were not covering the underneath routes, and they just flipped it off to the, uh, to the running back in the flat, and Darrell Williams made plays. Again, nine catches for 101 yards. When the running back, and not even Clyde Edwards-Alaire, is supposed to return next week, it looks like, which is good news for the Chiefs. But you now have running backs Racking at the receiving yards, that's when you know the Chiefs have finally made an adjustment. As the Raiders do what everyone else did, dropping seven, eight guys back in coverage, not blitzing. The dump-offs, the 10-yard gains were there for the taking, and Mahomes and the Chiefs finally, finally figured that out. And that's now, to me, this next move for the offense. Because even though, right, the run game itself wasn't efficient, and again, that's the run game where the, the teams are going to force the Chiefs to try to run the ball. wasn't great, but it was effective enough, and those underneath drop-off, dump-off passes were effective enough that, you know what? There weren't a ton of opportunities. There weren't a ton of shots, but the Raiders' defense did slowly start creeping up, and it did eventually open up the deep passing game. 
The patience paid off because it allowed Tyreek Hill to get loose deep. He had himself seven catches, 83 yards, two touchdowns. Now, two of those touchdowns early on and, and not exactly explosive plays, but there were openings deep later on in that game because the Chiefs were patient for the first two and a half, three quarters, three and a half quarters, and it did eventually open up the deep ball. So for me, you watch this game last night, the Chiefs have absolutely found their groove. I think they're going to keep it going moving forward here. And now when you look around the AFC, you see that the Chiefs have finally woken up. The chaotic nature of the AFC, where every single team we feel good about has two good weeks followed by two bad weeks. One great win followed by one great loss, right? No real team separated themselves for the most part so far on the AFC. And the one team that did in terms of wins, the Titans, lost their best player in Derrick Henry two weeks ago. But all of that chaos, all of that topsy-turviness that we saw so far through the first 10 weeks of the AFC, it benefited only one team. That was the Chiefs. It bought them time to figure it out. They weren't buried. They weren't dug in a hole too deep where they couldn't get out of it. And you think about it. This game, now that they have finally exploded enough, it's get a huge win over a division opponent in the Raiders. Don't look now. The Chiefs are in first place in the AFC West. It was, what, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, they were in last place in the AFC West, and that's where the questions are coming out. That's where the doubts are coming in. Kansas City finally found it out on offense. The Chiefs are really starting to heat up at the right time. And that is bad, bad news for everyone else in the AFC. That's honestly a shame on everyone else in the conference. You had a shot. The Chiefs, for the first nine weeks of the season, gave you an opportunity to pounce and run away with the conference. No one was able to do it. Don't look now. Chiefs are in first place in the AFC West. Slowly starting to creep up in the standings. Only one team, the Titans right now, have more wins than the Chiefs do in the conference. That is scary stuff. If you're the Bills, if you're the Ravens, if you're the Tennessee, the Chiefs are coming. And don't look now, by the way. One last thing I mentioned, because I want to give a lot of praise to the offense. Chiefs defense. They're starting to kind of get into their own groove a little bit. They've allowed 17 or less points in four out of their last five games. They're starting to heat up and play well. This Chiefs team is really starting to round the corner heading into the second half of the year. It's the reason why I never wavered from this team, even when they're in last place. To me, they still have too much talent. The fixes were still too simple enough to not think they're going to turn it around. And now they are finally showing it. The talent is there. They have figured out what defense are doing to them. And to me, the Chiefs are back. This is still the team to beat in the AFC. I'm not picking against them. I am absolutely not picking against them. I think they are going to go to their third straight Super Bowl in part because of what we saw last night. The adjustments were made, and that is bad, bad news for everyone else in the AFC. So I'm curious your thoughts. Love to hear whether it's on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio at Ride Hickey Show on Twitter as well. Are the Chiefs back? Are you believing in Kansas City now as a team to beat in the AFC, or is this just one good game? You want to see more from the offense. What is your belief level in the Kansas City Chiefs? Are they still the team to beat in the AFC? Comment on Facebook, Worldwide Sports or Eric. Twitter, hit us up at Ryan Hickey Show at WWSRN underscore radio. So we'll get your thoughts. When we do return here on the Ryan Hickey Show, Chiefs made a huge, huge statement last night, I thought. I thought two other teams did. 
one in a good way, one in a bad way. I'll tell you who those two teams are and the statements that they did make when we return here. You're listening to The Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to The Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show. Where else but the Worldwide Sports Radio Network? We appreciate you starting your week with us right here on this Monday morning, reacting to the Chiefs. Big time winners on Sunday night, I thought, showing they are back. The rest of the AFC really should be very, very, very nervous. Because what we saw in Kansas City last night, making the adjustments on offense, scoring 41 points, Patrick Holmes throwing five touchdowns, no interceptions. Well, mostly, for the most part, ducking the ball, you know, chucking the ball underneath. There wasn't a ton of openings deep. He capitalized when there were. Missed a few throws that were open. But for the most part, it was underneath passes to Travis Kelsey. Dump-offs to Darrell Williams, both of whom, just like we thought, Travis Kelsey, Darrell Williams, the two leaders for the Chiefs in terms of receiving yards last night. But the Chiefs finally offensively made the adjustments they had to, and we kind of saw the benefit of it. So I'm believing the Chiefs are back and absolutely still the team to beat in the AFC. Do you agree? Worldwide Sports Radio Network on Facebook, WWSRN underscore radio uh, on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show, also on Twitter, is where I can chime in your thoughts there. But I want to kind of talk about two other teams I thought made statements in different ways. We're just sitting here, right, talking about the Chiefs and why we talk about the Chiefs. Because their offense played well. Their offense for the most, for the first time in a long time, right? At least a month, maybe six weeks, played really well and gave you some reasons to believe. It's an offensive-driven league, as we know. Quarterback play is the most important position in the NFL. A lot of the rules are geared towards offense. With that said, though, while you do need an elite offense, while you do need to be able to pass the ball and pass the ball really well to have a chance to win a Super Bowl, you still need to have a good defense to win a championship. You cannot have bottom-of-the-barrel, awful defense and still be able to, I think, have a shot to win a Super Bowl. And I thought now, as we you know head midway through November, really the unofficial second half of the season kind of started in week number 10, I thought two Super Bowl contenders had their defenses send mixed messages on Sunday. For me, I thought the Packers absolutely reinforced where they're one of the best teams in the NFL because of how their defense played yesterday. And on the flip side, a team I like, the Chargers, with a good young quarterback, with a high-flying offense, well, their defense has me truly concerned now going forward as they lose another game. Now, whether they are true Super Bowl contenders or not, so let's start with the positive. Let's start with the Packers. Because that, it was an ugly defensive struggle, cold weather, old school football kind of game yesterday. All right, the storyline's coming in. You had Aaron Rodgers returning from the COVID list. You had Russell Wilson returning from finger surgery, shattering all the timelines that he was supposed to be out for, you know, maybe another six weeks, maybe another eight weeks. Well, he came back after missing just three games, came back a month later. So that was kind of the big story going in. The return of the two elite franchise quarterbacks who will play well. And as we know, really neither played well. 17-0 win for the Packers. But with that said, and then coming out of this game, Green Bay showed you why they are one of the most complete, complete teams in the NFL. They have, they could do it offensively. And just as importantly, 
they have a tremendous defense as well. And that was on full display, I thought, on Sunday. Because, again, another game, right? This is not new, but it's just another game, another example against a good quarterback where they did not have their best pass rusher, Zedarius Smith. They did not have their best corner, Jair, uh, Jair Alexander, both of whom you hope maybe could return at some point this year for the Packers. But even they didn't have two of their best players in offense, uh, defense, you still had a defense that was able to shut out the Seahawks for the first time in Russell Wilson's career. Now, to be fair, there was some rust there from Russ. He did look like a guy who hasn't played in a month. But with that said, I think also what played a part of that is how Green Bay's defense played. They were all over him all, all game long. They were in his face. They got pressure on Russ. They really were able to limit the big play. Right? They took away T, uh, Tyler Lockett deep. They weren't able to let DK Metcalf get going. They forced a lot of errant throws. They shut down the run games, even though, you know, the pass game wasn't working. Not that they're an extremely run-heavy team, but they were not able to kind of let Alex Collins and the run game get flourishing. They shut down every aspect of the Seattle offense yesterday. And the thing, if you're a Packers fan, if you're an NFL fan looking at a team like the Packers, is that it's not just a, a one-game wonder here, right? It's not just the Packers took advantage of a rusty Russell Wilson and were able to kind of shut him down in the cold for one game. You look at the last three games the Packers have been in which they are uh, two and one in games. They played the Cardinals, they played the Chiefs, and now they just played the Seahawks. Three tremendous quarterbacks in Kyler Murray, Patrick Mahomes, and uh, Russell Wilson. All three of those quarterbacks combined for just one total touchdown. Think about that. Kyler Murray, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson. One combined touchdown against this Green Bay defense. That's elite. That is legitimate. You had a high-flying, explosive Arizona offense, even though it was a short week, still with a full complement of weapons, right? They still had DeAndre Hopkins, who's kind of battling hamstring injury, but he was still out there. Kyler Murray played that game 99% of it healthy. You had James Conner, you had Chase Edmonds, you had Christian Kirk, you had Rondell Moore. The full complement of receivers, running backs, offensive weapons for Arizona, who was home on a short week, which is another advantage, mind you, was out there while the Packers are missing their two best defenders, and they still were able to hold a high-flying Cardinals offense to just 21 points. 21 points. An incredible win. You could say what you want about the whole A.J. Green play. The point is, they made plays at the end to win the game. They played really well defensively and shut down that Kyler Murray-led offense. And I understand last week, Jordan Love is playing. But on the other side, I get the, the Chiefs' offense was still struggling. You know, it's not exactly a huge accomplishment up until last night to say that you shut down the Chiefs' offense because a lot of teams are doing that. But still, they held Patrick Holmes, who had Travis Kelsey, who had Tyreek Hill again, who had a lot of his weapons healthy, held them at home to just 13 points. So now when you look at this Packers defense, right, they shut out the Seahawks, they limit the Cardinals, they for the most part shut down the Chiefs. Don't look now, but you look at this Packers defense. Third in the NFL in total defense, allowing just 18 points per game. This defense is legit. This is the most well-balanced, complete Packers team we have seen in a very, very long time. Even though their defense wasn't a weakness even last year, we saw some you know, faults. We saw some areas where they had to clean up. Now you can make the argument 
This is the strength of this Green Bay Packers team this year, which is tremendous. That's not a shot at Aaron Rodgers or, or Devonta Adams or this offense. But you now have a Packers defense with new defensive coordinator Joe Barry coming in and doing a tremendous job in shutting down elite offenses. And what we know in the, in the NFC, when you start to look at now, going forward, the offenses that the Packers are going to have to play, the Cowboys, the Rams, the Cardinals, maybe the Seahawks, the Buccaneers, every team for the most part they're going to play in the playoffs has an explosive, high-flying elite offense. You're going to need your defense to step up and make plays for you. And so far this year, Green Bay has done that. Right? I don't have a doubt really about Aaron Rodgers and this offense. Say what you want yesterday, came back a little rusty. Yeah, there's been some up and down moments. It hasn't been, let's say, as clean and as crisp as his MVP year was last year. But he's still playing some really good football. This offense is still moving the ball at at an efficient rate, still scoring points, and again, still playing really well. Are they as explosive as the ladies of the team that I just mentioned? No. I think the Cowboys have a better offense right now. The Rams do as well. The Buccaneers are more explosive. But I would say that the, the Packers are more consistent. You look on the defensive end, they are, again, playing at an elite level right now, which I think is a massive statement to send when you look at the teams you're going to have to face. The Cowboys defense has been good this year, right? They've been a lot better than expected. But that's also coming from a defense that was one of the worst defenses in the NFL last year. So they made strides, but it's not exactly one of the best units in the NFL. The Buccaneers secondary is totally depleted. The Rams continue to add on to their defense. The Cardinals have a solid defense, so you have to have a good defense here at bare minimum to have a shot to go to the Super Bowl, to get Aaron Rodgers back to Super Bowl number two this season. And I thought the Packers sent a big-time message yesterday in saying, yeah, we can. This defense is elite. They are legit. And you can make the argument. They are the strength of this team, which I think is a great thing if you're a Green Bay. If you have a unit playing better than Aaron Rodgers, yeah, I'll take that all day, every day. An incredible game yesterday. And I think, again, the Packers kind of highlighted and showed you, well, they are one of the most complete teams in all of the NFL. On the flip side, going to the AFC, this Chargers defense is a major, major concern. Latest example is them losing to the Vikings 27-20. And for a defense that has a glaring, glaring weakness, which is their run defense. They have gotten shredded all season long. The concerning part yesterday coming out of this game was that even though they have a great running attack, Minnesota does, right? They have a great back in Dalvin Cook. They were shredded in the air. Kirk Cousins had his way for the most part with this L.A. secondary. That's concerning because you can't stop the pass. Along with not being able to stop the run, I don't care how good this L.A. uh, offense is. I don't care how well Justin Herbert plays and all the weapons he has at his disposal. It is extremely hard to win games consistently, to win playoff games with a unit that is so, so bad like the Chargers' defense has been. You look yesterday, Kirk Cousins had himself a day, just short of 300 yards passing, two touchdowns, and he made big throws all game long. Fourth and goal, finds Tyler Conklin for a one-yard touchdown that eventually gives the, uh, the Vikings a lead that they don't relinquish. Huge in terms of trying to kill the clock. Third down pass to Justin Jefferson deep along the sideline. Kept the clock running. Kept the drive going, which again, 
They finished that drive out with a run, did not give the ball back. You look at a guy like Justin Jefferson, who's really damn good, don't get me wrong, but he was totally unguardable. Nine catches on the day, 143 yards. It's concerning. Yesterday, how leaky that pass defense was because, again, the rush defense we know is abysmal. That is not changing. They're absolutely horrendous when it comes to trying to stop the run. They're allowing a NFL worst 155 yards on the ground per game. So that to me, that defense is concerning because, look, you have right now a defense that can get run on by every team. Running the ball does what? Chews up clock, gets, you know, gets the defense tired, keeps the offense, the opposing offense on the field, gets them in a groove, makes their, their way to march up and down the field a lot easier. And you keep Justin Herbert and this high explosive offense on the sidelines. So now going forward again, we haven't got to the level of the Chiefs offense, right? Where we saw their defense struggle and struggle moderately and what happened. That inadvertently, or indirectly, I should say, led to Patrick Holmes, Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, Andy Reid putting extra pressure on them where they feel like they had to score every single drive. So guess what? They're taking more risks. They're being more aggressive. They're putting the ball in harm's way because the Chiefs in the back of their mind, while they won't say it, they kind of have a feeling, our defense stinks. They're not going to get a stop. So basically, we have to score every single drive we have because, you know what, we can't trust our defense to get a stop. And as we know, they led Patrick Holmes to turn the ball over more. They led the offense to kind of falling right into the defense's hands of when they're dropping eight guys back, double covering Tyreek Hill. Well, Patrick Holmes is still trying to fit the ball into Tyreek Hill. Not working. We saw this Chiefs offense go into a real slump in part it's not that they were trying too hard. The reason why they were trying too hard is because their defense stunk. So we haven't gotten there just yet with the, the Chargers offense, right? You haven't really seen Justin Herbert trying to do all too much, playing out of character, if you will, and just being totally reckless and loose with the ball. But I think it's coming. If you have the Chargers defense to, to, you know, if they continue to play like they have, that's coming. That frustration is going to come because guess what? You can't get a stop, and you know that, right? If you're Justin Herbert and you see every single offense when you're on the sideline having success, having long drives, scoring touchdowns, putting points on the board, it only puts more pressure on you when you're not on the field a lot, when you're not really dictating the pace. It puts more pressure on you to score, and that pressure only adds to more mistakes being made, and as we know, that only digs yourself in a deeper, deeper hole. So... L.A. has an explosive, fun offense, right? The Chargers offense is fun. Justin Herbert has been one of the best young quarterbacks we've seen. They have Keenan Allen. They have Mike Williams. They have Austin Eckler. They have a very good offense with an aggressive head coach in Brandon Staley. The issue is their defense right now is not getting many stops, and it's being a, you know one of the reasons why they're losing games. Even in a game they win last week, let's say against the Eagles 27-24, they needed the offense to bail them out and win that game. Even though it was only 24 points, you had Jalen Hurts drive down the field, score the game-tying touchdown in the second half. They were still moving the ball pretty well and reaching the end zone. Who knows? If L.A. doesn't kick the field goal or there's still a little bit of time left, maybe the Eagles drive down and, and win the game. With how that offense is going, it's absolutely not out of, you know, out of reach. This defense has become a liability. And from a Super Bowl contender perspective... When you look around the rest of the AFC, you can't stop anyone. I don't see how you're winning games. 
when you have one unit that that's drastically worse than every everyone else, it hinders you, and it really comes back to bite you in the playoffs, where the margin of error is so narrow. There's really not many advantages one way or another. A really bad defense comes back to bite you. So I think coming out of yesterday's game, I am really concerned about the Chargers defense. And on the flip side, really impressed, really impressed, I should say, with how the Packers defense has played. They are one of the most complete teams in the NFL. And their defense, that unit is better right now than the offense. It is a strength of the Packers, which is a tremendous, tremendous thing if you're a Packers fan. And if you're a Chargers fan, there should be a legitimate concern. It's fun watching the high-flying offense of Justin Herbert, but there should be a legitimate concern about your defense being the reason why either you're at home before the playoffs start or quickly on wild card weekend. So I'm curious your thoughts. You watch the Chargers here. They're 5-4. and four, They're struggling. Are these Super Bowl contenders still in your mind? Facebook Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We'll get your thoughts, and when we do return here on the Ryan Hickey Show, Buccaneers lose their second game in a row. Should there be concerned? Should we hit the alarms? Sound the alarms for the Buccaneers and that maybe they're not as good as we think. We'll discuss that and more in NFL Quick Hits. That is next right here on the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show. 15 minutes from now, top of the hour, Bill Belichick. Is this the best coaching job Bill Belichick has ever done in his career? Pats through to 6-4 and four with a dominant victory over Cleveland yesterday. We will discuss that in 15 minutes, but it's a Monday after week number 10 in the NFL, which means we have a ton of quick hits to get to, so let's dive into it. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, for me, despite losing their second game in a row, both to pack up quarterbacks, um, I'm not concerned about Tampa Bay. I think the Buccaneers are going to be fine. The biggest reason, for me at least right now, for their slow... I don't want to say start, but just the, the little slump that they're in, right? Losing to Trevor Simeon and the Saints. Follow that up coming out of the bye, losing to uh, Taylor Heineke and the Washington football team. I think really the biggest factor for them in coming out of this little slump here or going into this slump has been injuries. Like, not to make excuses, but they're pretty banged up. Gronk still remains out. He's been out for a while with those, with those ribs. Antonio Brown missed another game. That secondary for Tampa is totally depleted. Now, I think there is a little bit of concern when it comes to the defense. Because that secondary is not going to get healthy anytime soon. And especially when it comes to pass defense. It's been, it's been a struggle all season long. With that said, the healthier they get, the better they get. Like, I'm not too worried about Tampa Bay. I'm not going to hit the alarm. This is still, to me, one of the best five teams in the NFC without a doubt. Still have one of the best shots of any team to make the Super Bowl. Tom Brady's going to be fine, too. Let's not worry about him. Four picks in the last two games. You know, he's, he's struggled a little bit. Some of those picks were not his fault. But he's also a player, let's remember, who plays his best football down the stretch. Right? Let's go back to just last year. Remember this point last year where we were with the Buccaneers? Week 9, they got blown out. Got their doors blown off 
by the Saints on Sunday Night Football in Tampa. This is a team for the first 12 games of the year last year who was still trying to figure it out, get on the same page. I get, you know, they brought everyone back. You had a full offseason to get continuity. I'm not still concerned about the Buccaneers. This, to me, is a team that is veteran-laden, that, to me, is kind of going to peak at the right moment. Two losses to two backup quarterbacks in the span of three weeks is not, to me, enough of a concern to hit the to hit the alarm or sound the panic button. So a ton of confidence. This team is Super Bowl contender worthy, and they will be absolutely in the conversation by the time this season ends. No worries about the Buccaneers. The Lions and the Steelers. And what the hell are we going to say about this game? I'm going to look at this game from both the Steelers' perspective and the Lions' perspective. From Pittsburgh. I mean, my goodness. That was one of the most embarrassing performances I've seen from the Steelers in years. It doesn't matter that Mason Rudolph was playing, that Big Ben, in the last second, was putting the COVID protocol and was out. There's no excuse. Even with a backup quarterback, you cannot allow that performance like we saw yesterday to happen. And you talk about getting gashed. This is the Lions here we're talking about. This is a Pittsburgh defense that has been one of the best defenses in all the NFL. They were gashed on the ground for 229 yards. And this is, by the way, not that they were getting gashed on the ground because they were you know, worried about Jared Goff carving them up. Jared Goff, you would jump for joy when Jared Goff would drop back to pass. He was horrible. We'll get to him in a second. But the fact that they allowed basically 230 yards on the ground, you can't allow that to happen. I'm sorry. Three turnovers were super sloppy, including the, the kicker, the, the really, you know, the one that takes the cake here is Pat Farmuth, my guy. Penn State guy, too. Unfortunately, that costly fumble in Detroit territory that ended up basically preserving the tie. This is a game where you look at it come from the Pittsburgh perspective where they are honestly, even though it's against the Lions, they're lucky to tie this game. They play anyone else. The Giants, the Jets, the Jaguars, the Texans, they lose this game. They should be thanking their lucky stars that it's only the Lions. And they came out of that with a tie. Absolutely embarrassing performance by Pittsburgh. And that is something where Mike Tomlin's going to have to wake his guys up because they look like they were not interested from the start. On the flip side, from Detroit's perspective, if you can't win that game, the Steelers tried to give you that game on a silver platter and you still couldn't get the job done. If you can't win that game... I don't see how they find uh, a win this year. I don't. Not saying that Detroit played their best game, but that was it. That was a situation where you're looking for just one win, right? The goal for Dan Campbell at this point in the season should just be one win. They had that opportunity yesterday. It was given them. The Steelers gave them every chance possible. And instead, Detroit, while well, they continue to find new ways to not get the job done. We mentioned Jared Goff before, and you talk about just abysmal. He was horrible. 114 passing yards on the game. Was really not a threat to throw the ball at all. Really struggled throwing the ball. I know it was wet. I know it was raining. The ball was slippery. Terrible, terrible day from Jared Goff. After getting a huge break in overtime. Where, again, the Steelers were trying to give you the game. Big fumble in overtime. You recover it at your own 45, short field to go. They get in field goal range. 
You have to be able to make the plays to win the game. 48-yard field goal, I get it's in highest field. I get the conditions stink. You got to hit that field goal. Got to hit the field goal. And instead, forget just missing. Wasn't even close. Wasn't even close. So I know the Lions have played hard, right? That's been their calling card. They really haven't gotten blown out in many games. They have been right there, whether it's the Ravens game, whether it's the Vikings game, now yesterday against the Steelers. They have been in games. They've had opportunities to win. We, As we know, they've fallen short every time. But coming out of yesterday's game, my biggest takeaway is that was the game. That was the game for Detroit to get the win, to get off the schneid, to avoid going 0-17. And they technically did avoid going 0-17. But for me, I look at this team, and this just screams 0-16-1. It's coming. It's so hard, as we know, to kind of predict it and have teams go winless, just like it is for teams going defeated. But Detroit, that was the game. That was absolutely the game, and they blew it. Heartbreaking if you're a Lions fan. And again, I feel like I ask this question every single week. I don't know what Lions fans did to deserve this. I don't know. I don't know if you ate, you know, ate something you weren't supposed to eat, if you, if you prayed to the wrong football god, if in the 1950s, I don't know if you sold your soul to win an NFL championship in like 1955. I don't know. But whatever the Lions and their fans have done, curse this organization. It has been not only just brutal to watch, but now recently they're doing so in some of the most heartbreaking uh, ways imaginable. Brutal. I feel for your Lions fans. I do. I'm sorry. That is awful. I'm rooting for you to get the win. Rooting hard for the Lions yesterday. But they make it hard to have any confidence they can even get one win by blowing a game like they did yesterday. Speaking of, or I guess transitioning from bad to good, maybe Cowboys yesterday sent a reminder. Now, there shouldn't have been much panic. Right? We kind of came on here and yes, last week and kind of told you there's no real worries about Dallas. It was just... One of those games where not sound corny or cliche, but that would to me that the game last week against the Broncos was one of those games where any given Sunday, any team can win against any team at any moment. And I thought the Broncos just coming out and dominating the, the, the Cowboys is more of just one of those where Dallas came out flat. You had Dak Prescott still rusty coming off the calf injury, not playing in three weeks. And you know one of those games where just the Broncos had everything go their way and the Cowboys couldn't catch a break. Well, if there was any doubt about Dallas... If those of you who wanted to take the Broncos game and kind of extrapolate it and say, oh, look, see, this is, this is one of the reasons why they're not going to be good the rest of the year. Defense is overrated. Dak's not playing that well. Well, you quickly got a reminder yesterday that that uh, Broncos game was absolutely a fluke. Dallas, by far, still one of the best teams in the NFL, and they showed you why yesterday. Thrash. And you talk about a thrashing of the Falcons, 43-3. Now, most times we're not going to take a game when you're playing the Falcons and say that's a statement game. But Dallas coming off the slow, you know, the, the 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 sloppy game last week against the Broncos, they were just flat out dominated by Denver on their own field. And you look at the Falcons, Falcons came into yesterday's game a playoff team. I know they're four and four, but they had this seventh seed in the NFC. They're playing better football of late. So you were going against what is and what could be a playoff team. And you take it to them from the jump. And 43-3. to This is not against the Lions or the Jets. This is against the Falcons. Who have been playing better football. Dak, like we said, was rusty last week. Nothing more than that. 296 yards, three touchdowns. 24-3 run, very efficient. 
defense was swarming like they have been. Micah Parsons, defensive player of the year, uh, defensive player of the year, maybe defensive player, uh, defensive rookie of the year. Give him the award already. Defense had two interceptions of Matt Ryan, and he had just nine completions. Matt Ryan, they throw the ball ten in Atlanta. He had just nine completions yesterday. Dallas with a reminder. They are still one of the best teams in the NFL. How about Cam Newton? I'll be honest, I did not even expect him to play. It seemed to be a late surprise that he was active. Now, he only got a few plays, right? They had a few specific packages made for him. But in fitting fashion, the first two plays that Cam Newton runs in his rebirth with the Panthers, two touchdowns. One rushing, one passing. Absolute dominant performance and victory by Carolina over the shorthanded Cardinals offense, playing without Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins yet again. Oh, excuse me, sorry. Voice again a little dry. But I will say this for Cam Newton. He had a tremendous debut. Again, two touchdowns and a very short sample size. It seems to be like he is going to be the starter for Carolina now moving forward starting next week, going against his old head coach and Ron Rivera and the Washington football team. With that said, though, getting a big win on the road against one of the best teams again. I know they're shorthanded, but still a big win on the road at the Cardinals. With that said, I'm still not sold about Cam leading this team to the playoffs. I'm still not sold he's going to be the answer. Maybe it's just recency bias, but I don't think that's the case when I look at how he played in New England last year. Eight touchdowns, ten interceptions, his accuracy was questionable, his arm strength was really not there. I think a lot of what we saw in 2020 of the Patriots is what we will see again with Cam in the Panthers in 2021. I don't think it's going to be good enough to lead the, the Panthers to the playoffs. I know he had a great debut. He's telling everyone he's back, ripping off his helmet. But I'll say this. I want to see Cam now in the full quarterback role. Not on the one-yard line as a, you know, a bulldozer. Can he lead the Panthers from the 20-yard line to the end zone? From the opposite 20 to the end zone. Right now, we did not see that happen much in New England. Outside of really the Seahawks game, which everyone wants to hold on to and cling on to. That was week two last year. The rest of the season. Again, the season doesn't, doesn't end after week two. We saw from weeks three to 17 last year was not pretty. And I think that's going a lot of what we're going to see in Carolina. So, I know I wasn't here on Thursday. I was filling in on CBS Sports Radio. So, I said it there, but not here. But I'll reiterate it quickly. I think Carolina signing Cam Newton was the best move for them. He is the best quarterback to get them to the playoffs. It's not going to be Sam Darnold. As we know, he's going to be out for a while anyway. It's not going to be P.J. Walker. It's not going to be Matt Barkley. Cam is the best option for the Panthers to reach the playoffs. With that said, though, I don't think he's good enough to get them to the promised land. Big win, big debut, if you want to call it a debut. A rebirth yesterday. But I don't see this ending in a playoff berth for Carolina. Devontae Smith. What a tremendous rookie year he's having. It continues to get better and better. Now, he's not going to have the yards and the stats that kind of pop out and flash, like let's say Jamar Chase is doing with the Bengals, right? He is going to win rookie of the year, Jamar Chase will. But Devontae Smith is showing you week in, week out, how much better he's getting, why he is you know, one of the best picks the Eagles could have made. Why trading up for him is absolutely worth it. Four catches yesterday, 66 yards, two touchdowns. And that first touchdown reception, I'm sure you saw it, was an absolute beauty. Great throw by Jalen Hurts, about 40 yards down the field. Smith makes an acrobatic catch, gets one uh, leg inbounds. 
crashing down hard, contested catch. It was a great play. And he's now showing you week in and week out how great of a route runner he is, his incredible hands, and his elusiveness. Like, that's really it. His elusiveness, whether it's running routes or after the catch, is tremendous. Can't be overstated enough. And that was one of the biggest reasons why he won the Heisman Trophy last year. He's not exactly the fastest guy. No, no one's calling him the biggest guy in the field, right? But he has that elusiveness that no teams, no defensive coordinators, no cornerbacks seem to be able to figure out and slow him down. And now we're seeing that in Philly. Nick Sirianni's getting more comfortable. Jalen Hurts is getting more comfortable. They're figuring out how to use him. It's coming together nicely in uh, Philly. And again, while Jamar Chase, and deservingly so, will get all the attention as a rookie wide receiver, he's going to win rookie of the year. Demontis is at the show, and he's still having a very nice season. I'm excited to see how it finishes. He's a guy I think it's going to only get better as the season goes on, and I'm excited to see the, the um, heights that he could continue to climb to here the second half of the year. And finally, we'll finish with an error that possibly is finished, the Mike White error. It seems now, after taking over and kind of really taking over in New York for the last three weeks, Mike White fever has subdued. Came back down to earth, thrown four interceptions as the Bills were just blown out, or the Jets were just blown up by the Bills, 45-17. Now, two things I'll say here. Number one, it does appear that Mike White's starting time is over. Right? It kind of seemed like he was going to continue to play as long as he was playing well. That would seem to be the plan from Robert Sal and the Jets. We're going to ride the hot hand for as long as we can, then we're going to go back to Zach Wilson. Well, it seems Zach Wilson is either healthy enough or right there coming back from that knee injury, to be able to play next week or maybe they give him one more week. So even though it appears that, for the most part, Mike White is not going to be able to be the next Tom Brady, let's say, filling for injury and never get the job back, I will say, I think the Mike White era is going to benefit the Jets in more ways than not, and here's why. It did, I think, finally open up the eyes of Zach Wilson and allow him to think of things from a different perspective and maybe even... Get some humility in his game that I think will benefit the Jets going long term. Because as we know, kind of the first six, eight weeks that, that Zach Wilson played, he played a lot off script. He really tried to, to hit the home run ball. It was kind of an all or nothing offense. He really did not flow too much within the how the offense is supposed to be run. It's a very in-rhythm, you know, short passing West Coast offense kind of system the Jets run. And instead, Zach Wilson dropped back scramble, run around, and just try to, you know, make 45-yard throws across his body for touchdowns, kind of like what Patrick Holmes does. So he doesn't really run how the, he doesn't really run the offense in the way it's supposed to be run. But now the last few weeks, after he got hurt, watching Mike White run the offense the way it's supposed to be run. Quick hitters, get the ball out, find your, you know, the open guy, take what the defense is giving you. And watching Mike White have a ton of success, right? Threw for over 400 yards against the Bengals, Played well in two drives against the, the Colts before getting hurt. I think having and watching if you're Zach Wilson, another quarterback, have that success in running the offense the way it's supposed to run, I do think and now it makes Zach Wilson a better quarterback when he does return. I do think now that it, it kind of forces Zach Wilson to look in the mirror, if you will, and realize, I can't be running the offense the way I want to run. I, we can't force the BYU offense, or especially last year. If you watched a lot of Zach Wilson and BYU last year, and they were a fun team to watch. A lot of that offense was Zach Wilson dropping back, dancing around the pocket, having six, seven, eight seconds to throw the ball, and then throwing the ball deep to one of his receivers. He had tremendous receivers at BYU. Every team the Cougars played for the most part, they had the talent advantage over, 
So the offensive line was blocking and blocking really well, and that gave Zach Wilson plenty of clean pockets to throw to. You can make the argument that also forced bad habits because the Jets don't have an offensive line that can give them eight seconds to throw the ball. They don't have tremendous receivers like he had at BYU. He has to now get the ball out quick, make the right read, and just play within the rhythm and the system of the offense and how it was built. And I do think that two, three, four weeks that Zach Wilson has to watch Mike White will benefit Zach Wilson and the Jets going forward. It was a fun era, and maybe it continues next week. There was some, there was some doubt cast by Robert Sala that maybe Zach Wilson still needs one more, two more weeks uh, with the knee injury. So even if we get one or two more starts from Mike White, it's going to be Zach Wilson's team. He's going to play again this year. But you can make the argument. I think it's a right one. Those last three, four weeks could be really what kind of changes Zach Wilson and turns his career around because now his eyes were open to what actually works in the NFL. So that'll do it for quick hits here on the Ryan Hickey Show. When we do return on the Worldwide Sports Network, the Patriots win again. They move to 6-4 and four in the season with a blowout win over the Browns. Is Bill Belichick having the best season coaching of his career? We discuss that next when, it, uh, when the Ryan Hickey Show does return. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show. Our number two with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. As we go to... 11 a.m. Eastern. As a reminder, the 10 o'clock hour is always sponsored by LC Design. Charcuterie boards are perfect for all occasions, so make sure your guests are happily fed with some delicious and aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. We'll discuss Steve Sarkeesian and his job security at Texas coming off of that historically bad loss at Kansas on Saturday in about 15 minutes or so. But I do want to talk about the New England Patriots here. They absolutely dismantled the Browns 45-7. to And I want to give them credit, but not only give them credit, give Bill Belichick credit. I think now as you look at the Patriots, 6-4, and four, right? record-wise, not one of the best seasons they've had. But oh, you take everything into account. I think this has been one of the best coaching jobs of Bill Belichick's career. He's had great teams, right? As we know, he's been to, what, nine Super Bowls and won six. Countless AFC East titles, numerous AFC uh, championship games. With that said, I think this season so far with a 6-4 and four Patriots team at the moment through 10 weeks, I think it's definitely fair to say, and absolutely is the case, this has been one of Bill Belichick's best coaching jobs of his career. And here's why. They don't have the most talent in the world. They don't really excel in one particular area. Right? Their defense is sound and solid. They're not allowing a ton of points. Their offense has been, we'll say, efficient in getting the job done. But they don't have, let's say, a world-beating offense or an elite shutdown, uh, shutdown secondary. They don't have one of the best players in the NFL. Talent-wise, this is one of the lesser teams Bill has had. With that said, this year, in a topsy-turvy AFC, where no one has been able to consistently put two games, uh, two good games on top of each other, the Patriots have been the most consistent team in the NFL. 
That's a huge credit to them. That's a direct reflection on coaching. You look around the NFL, or this year especially, feels every team has had a stinker, has had a what-the-hell-was-that kind of performance, except the Patriots. Like, I get they lost to the Dolphins in week number one, but to give both the Dolphins and Patriots credit, I do think that Dolphins team we saw in week one is a different team, a better team week one than what we saw, let's say, in week nine or ten. That defense is better. Two was still healthy and on the field. They had a full complement of weapons. So even though they lost that game, I would still say that's not exactly as bad of a loss as we've seen where you have the Titans losing to the Jets. You had the Ravens lose to this Dolphins team. But again, this Dolphins team is way worse now than it was earlier in the season. They also, the Ravens, got blown out by the Bengals at home. You've had the Chiefs outside of last night basically struggle all season long, right? Offensively, they were never able to figure it out. Defensively, they're a mess for the most part. You had the Bills two weeks ago lose to the Jets, uh, lose to the Jags, excuse me. Score six points against the Jaguars in a loss. You had the Buccaneers lose to the Saints and Washington football team, both with backup quarterbacks. You could say you could get, you know, cut the Cardinals some slack. I'm not when they lost to the Packers, as the Packers were missing their top three receivers at home in a short week. You gotta be able to win that game. Arizona did not. You had the Rams team, who look, I know they lost to the Titans, and the Titans are eight and two, best record in the AFC. That's a bad loss. They were without Derrick Henry. That was the first game without Derrick Henry. If you're the Rams at home on Sunday Night Football, as one of the best teams in the NFL, I'm sorry, you can't lose that game. Can't lose that game. Packers week one were a total no-show against the Saints. So the point is, as I lay out everything here, all of the best teams in the NFL have had at least one week where it's like, oh, what the hell are you watching? Is this team really as good as we think? What is going wrong? And everything possibly could have just you know, gone south. Really, the Patriots are the only team you could point to this year that has shown up every week, that has competed every week, that's played hard every week, that hasn't gotten blown out. I know it's a little bit of a moral victory card, but you look at the talent and and where this team is. There was a ton of new players. They're working in a rookie quarterback. And the fact that they have competed and been in every game is a direct reflection and a massive credit to Bill Belichick. They're really the only team in the AFC that has been consistently showing up week after week. He's coached up really all three phases to play some really sound football. And this is, again, you're playing with a rookie quarterback. You have a team built through free agency. So there's a lot of new faces, a lot of new names that you're teaching a new system to, trying to get everyone on the same page, Yes, they have some veterans, but when there's so many new faces, you have COVID opt-outs now returning. There's basically a lot that had to be retaught, and it's almost like a brand new team Bill Belichick has been given this year compared to uh, previous years. With that said, with all that turnover, with all that change, they're still playing clean, crisp football on a weekly basis. You look at Mac Jones. Mac Jones has done a tremendous job this season in leading the offense. Let's not forget, there's no small feat here to have Mac Jones playing well. Sure, was he the most NFL-ready quarterback coming out of the draft? I would say yes. And right now he's showing that. But let's also not forget, this is the first time Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels with the Patriots are working in a new quarterback, a rookie quarterback in two decades. Right? This is not Bill Oldhead, this is the fourth time trying to break in a guy, maybe he's the one. When you have Tom Brady there for so long, and Tom Brady is so advanced that you really don't have to worry about day one mechanics, it could be tough, and it could be almost, you know, 
uncharted territory for Bill Belichick to have to reteach and deal with a rookie quarterback. But so far, again, you've seen Mac progress all throughout the year. Yesterday alone, against a Browns team that I thought was still very talented, still a playoff team in my mind. Coming into New England, both teams are 5-4. and four. I think they're both kind of evenly matched. You had Mac Jones, just four incompletions, three touchdown passes, no turnovers. Against a Browns defense that was in his face a little bit, that has been pretty solid, that has talent on it. And all season long, he's been efficient, completing 68% of his passes on the year. So Mac Jones knows where he's going with the football, doesn't put it in harm's way too much, finds the open guy making his progressions. On the season, look, 13 touchdowns, 7 interceptions. Is that eye-popping? Wow. Is it sexy? No. But he's getting the job done. And you look around the NFL, whether it's Trevor Lawrence, whether it's Zach Wilson, whether it's Justin Fields, I know we haven't really seen a lot of Trey Lance. But Zach, uh, Mac Jones, only quarterback, only rookie quarterback so far with more touchdown passes than interceptions. We have seen now week in and week out, the training wheels are coming off more and more. They're giving more responsibility to Mac Jones's plate here. Remember a few weeks ago, everyone in Boston, even some of the media, were freaking out that Mac Jones was throwing the ball only five yards in the air. Right? There was no deep shots. They weren't really you know, moving the ball deep. Well, now you look. He had a nice touchdown pass to Kendrick Bourne in double coverage, fit it right in. They're pushing the ball down the field. It's a slow growth. But so far through 10 games, Bill Belichick has done a, a tremendous job, I would say, at developing Mac Jones and getting him ready to play to where he is now not only holding you back, but he has guided this offense in an efficient way that they are winning games because of him, not just you know avoiding losing games. But it's not just the quarterback. Because again, it's not just like there's only one new part here on this team. We just highlighted all the different changes. This team was super active in free agency. They had a ton of holes. Credit to Bill Belichick. Look, I'll be honest. I doubted the way that you could build a team through free agency. To me, that's a losing way to do so. You're looking for a ton of quick fixes. The NFL and free agency is unlike any other sport. There's really not a way to truly build a team through free agency. You can get a piece or two, absolutely. But when you're looking at five, six, seven, eight guys to come in and be contributors right away and plug different holes, that's, you know, that's a tough thing to do. We haven't really seen it happen too often. But to Belichick's credit, He's making it work. And now all of those free agent acquisitions he has had are really starting to pay dividends. Hunter Henry, two more touchdown receptions yesterday. Now already has seven touchdowns on the season. His career high when he was with LA, eight. So he's going to catch that and surpass that. So Hunter Henry's having is on, on pace to have a career year. Matt Judon, right, the big prize possession for Bill. And this Patriots defense at, at edge rusher coming over from the Ravens already has tied his career high with nine and a half sacks. That was another guy where, eh, yeah, he had a good year. I wasn't exactly sure that Matt Judon would be this game-breaking edge rusher that the Patriots are kind of paying him for. But so far, he has been wreaking havoc in the backfield. You can't miss those red sleeves. You know, it's hard. It's easy to spot where Matt Judon is on the field. That's for sure. And most of the time, you see those red sleeves in the backfield. Hitting the quarterback, getting pressure on him. And again, nine and a half sacks already tied his career high. So he's going to have a career. So Matt Judon and Hunter Henry, two of the, the big fringes that Bill Belichick has brought in, both on track to have career years. And let's not forget, another thing, whether it's fair or not, I think that you, we can incorporate as to why Bill is having one of the best years of his career coaching-wise, 
is that let's not forget the narrative of the Patriots and Bill Belichick, not only heading to this year, but a quarter of the way through. Week four, right, that was always the big game, Brady's return. And what happens when you have Brady returning to New England for the first time since not only leaving the Patriots, but also, oh yeah, winning a Super Bowl with his brand new team, the Buccaneers. It's always the Brady versus Belichick. Who was more important? Who was more, you know, who had a bigger part in that two-decade dynasty the Patriots have had? And of course, it's very easy to say, well, look at the Buccaneers. They won a Super Bowl uh, with Tom Brady in his first year there, and they're off to another good start in 2021. Look at the Patriots. We saw what happened last year. Cam Newton struggled. Weren't a very good team. Tried to go all in afraid to say they started the year after losing to that Buccaneers game, a sloppy game, one and three. It was easy to basically write off at uh, Bill Belichick and be like, hmm, is this guy really as good of a coach as we thought? There was segments, there was, there was discussion. Is Bill Belichick truly a good coach? Is it all Tom Brady? Does he desperately need Brady to have his success? And guess what? Through four weeks, Bill struggled and didn't have it. But we are seeing a turnaround to where that narrative has quickly been extinguished because Bill is doing a tremendous job. And reminding everyone, oh yeah, I could still coach. I could still get the job done here. Defensively, they're playing great football. Offensively, becoming more efficient and more streamlined with all new faces up and down this lineup. So I watched Sunday's game against the Browns, a total dismantling of Cleveland, who to me is still a good team. I mean, it's not like Cleveland just completely had one of their worst games of the season. They didn't hand this game to New England. Patriots made a few plays, but New England won this game. I think it goes to show you, and goes to, you know, a lot of the credit should go to Bill Belichick for how he has coached up this team. Now, I think it equals one of the best coaching performances of his career. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Are the Patriots legitimate AFC Super Bowl contenders? Don't look now. They're 6-4. and four. The Bills are 6-3. and three. They're just a half came out in the loss column against Buffalo, and they're going to be playing two times in you know, the next month. So we are going to see where the Patriots stack up through 10 games. Should they be in the Super Bowl conversation? Worldwide Sports Run Network on Facebook, WWSRN underscore radio on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. Are the Patriots Super Bowl contenders? And is this Bill Belichick's best season of his career? We'll get your thoughts uh, on that topic. And when we do return here, we'll mix in a little college football. Oklahoma season, is it over? And boy, is it time for Steve Sarkeesian to be put on the hot seat. We'll get into that when the Ryan K Show does return right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Oh, yes. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So you thought the college football slate was just, eh, not too many great games. Michigan takes care of business at Penn State. Baylor takes out Oklahoma. We'll get to that here in a second. But not many sexy matchups jumped out to you. Not too many ranked on ranked matchups. That is okay because college football does what no other sport can do on a weekly basis. Provide drama out of nowhere. And we got that. Texas 
and Florida is where we start here on College Football Whip Around. Because those are two schools, Florida taking on Samford, FCS Samford, not Stanford, Samford, and Texas taking on Kansas. One and eight Kansas, 58 straight road losses in the big uh in the Big 12, excuse me, for the Jayhawks. Two games, two teams I thought we'd have 0% chance of talking about today. But here we are, college football yet again providing the drama. I want to get to both Dan Mullen standing in, at Florida and Steve Sarkeesian standing at Texas. Let's start with Sark. You talk about embarrassing losses. Of all the college football losses we've seen, we've seen Florida State lose to Jackson State. Jacksonville State, I believe, actually. Excuse me. So we've seen FCS programs come in and take down the big dogs, FBS. With that said, though, I don't think any team has suffered a more embarrassing loss in college football to date this year than Texas losing to Kansas in overtime 57-56. Embarrassing. Had a lot of fun on social media Saturday night if you were watching that game. Twitter was blowing up some tremendous content. Everyone, including myself, does love to see Texas lose. With that said, Steve Sarkeesian won't get fired, nor should he get fired for that loss. I know Texas has lost five games in a row now. This is the first time since 1956, 1956, that Texas has lost five games in a row. With that said, you can now pull the ripcord on Sark this early into the year. I get it's ugly. I get right now you are what you hope and pray to be rock bottom for Texas. You want to get back. You desperately want to scream if you're a Texas fan, Texas is back. We hear it every time Texas basically wins a game, right? Anytime the Longhorns win, Texas is back. Texas is back. Well, how Texas truly does get back, though, is by not being, you know, by, by not pulling the ripcord this early. You got to give Sark time. You need to give him time to turn this team around. Firing him 10 games into the season of his first year, a rough stretch, it doesn't get UT any closer to national title contention than where they are now. Look, let's go for this. Sark in one area is doing his job. The offense is scoring and scoring at an insanely high clip. Now, outside of really the Iowa State game, they have scored consistently. Now, there's been issues with second-half performance, slowing down. That is absolutely issues that have to be figured out. But in college football, you need to give head coaches time. If we are firing head coaches based on one bad loss in year number one, well, you know who's never building a dynasty? Nick Saban in Alabama. Let's look back at look at Nick Saban's first year back in 07. They went seven and six, and they lost to Louisiana Monroe, ULM, at home late in the season. That's an awful loss. If Alabama fans were that knee jerk, if social media was as popular as it was back in 07, you know how many calls for Nick Saban to be fired there would be after that loss after going to seven and six in year number one. But what happened? Nick Saban got time to implement his culture. He brought his players in, and as we know, Alabama's the most dominant program in college football now for the last 15 years. You need to give Sark time. Three years, get his players in, establish a culture. It's not going to happen overnight. I know some coaches are able to make a change quickly. But let's also not forget, college football growth is not linear. It's not make the coaching change all of a sudden, now you're just skyrocketing up, there's going to be no downs. There's ups and downs. This is college football. 
there's always more downs and up. Outside of really Alabama and maybe Clemson this last five-year run here, outside of this year, no program has just a straight shot up without any roadblocks, without any, you know, down uh, areas. You're going to have to go through the lumps. Sark is still figuring it out. And I don't think you help the problem by firing a head coach, a guy that I thought was going to be a good fit, a guy that really does help with the biggest area uh, that Texas has been lacking in player development. we got to give him time to develop the players. This roster is not where it should be. There's still some holes, and obviously defensively you see they need a lot of work. But offensively, they're figuring it out. They're scoring points. Let Sark figure it out. He's going to be fine. Let him build the program. There's no need to even put Sark on the hot seat. It's an embarrassing loss. I get it. There's nothing more humiliating than having Kansas fans in your own building mocking you by screaming SEC. That is the lowest point of the low. With that said, there still should be no pressure. There should be no heat on Steve Sarkeesian's seat. Give him time to figure it out. Making these rash decisions, firing coaches quickly here, is how you turn your relevant program still into a complete dumpster fire, into, honestly, a joke. Give him time, he'll be fine. On the flip side, I think Dan Mullen, the end is near at Florida. There's no way you can bring him back to be the head coach of the Gators in 2022. This is year four, so you have the time. Mullen has had the opportunity to bring his players in here, establish a culture, and get what he wants set. But now, you know, you're looking at year four of Dan, uh, year four of Dan Mullen's tenure. The reason why I don't think he's going to be back in 2022 is not just because they kept it close with Samford. It's not just because this, the Samford scored the most first-half points on Florida in their history. 42 points. It's not the fact that he's 2-5 and five in the SEC this year. It's honestly because of how he runs the program. It's not the results. It's the way he runs the program. That's the biggest issue. He has been notoriously an excuse maker throughout his entire time with the Gators, even before that with Mississippi State. But now, especially because you're at Florida, a big-time program, we see those excuses made more often. I mean, on Saturday, you had Dan Mullen with a straight face after basically needing the second-half comeback of all comebacks to beat, again, Samford, an FCS school that was 4-5 and five entering the game. You needed a massive second-half comeback to just avoid embarrassment and winning that game. He, in the post-game press conference, sat there with a straight face and said, yeah, it's a good win. This is a big win. This is a great win. He is trying to tell you, he's trying to spin zone this win so much that it's like one of those, you know, cornerstone, cornerstone or, or program-changing wins over Samford. What are we doing here? To go 5-5 five and five in the year. Go back to last year, right? Last year, 2020, was the best season that Mullins had at Florida, right? Kyle Trask and the offense is lighting it up. They made it to the SEC title game. They were close to the, the playoff, and they lost to Alabama, the most dominant team in the country last year, but one touchdown. I mean, even last year, go back to the loss at Texas A&M early on in the year. Do you remember what Dan Mullen said? Dan Mullen was blaming the attendance at Texas A&M as a reason why the loss, talking about how jam-packed that stadium was, and they got to open up the swamp, and we got to have a full you know, stadium in order for this team to win. So we have Dan Mullen last year blaming the Texas A&M crowd for the reason why they lost. He blamed a lack of focus and basically how 
the bowl game didn't even count as a reason why they got blown out in the bowl game. Uh, you know, despite the fact that, you know, he said, oh, our season ended in the SEC title game. He takes no accountability. He doesn't even care that his team no-showed in a New Year's Six bowl game. Had the whole Marco Wilson shoe incident lead to their loss at uh, against LSU, a bad LSU team that was reeling to end the season before going into that SEC title game that ended their hopes of a cultural playoff. So he has always had some sort of cockamamie excuse lined up for why his team lost, never the fact that he's been outcoached or that his team just didn't make the plays. And this team, they got blown out by South Carolina this year. Lost to Kentucky. Not two, pro- two good programs. Florida should be winning those games every single year. Dan Mullen's not only doing so, he's making excuses as to why. And he's not making excuses. Well, he's not blaming attendance. Or he's not blaming the fact that the season was over, they didn't care about the bowl game, as to why their teams are losing. He has one foot out the door. And last year, his name for, I don't know, whatever reason, but his name was thrown around, you know, in the mix for some NFL head coaching jobs. He never got an interview. But his name was thrown around. Is expected to be thrown around again this year. He had Rick Neuheisel. Uh, saying on SiriusXM that Dan Mullen would take an NFL job because he's tired of what's going on in Florida. Well, I'll tell you this. Florida is what's t- uh, is tired of what Dan Mullen is doing here. I don't see how you could bring him back. And it's not just because the results or keeping it close against Samford. It's how he runs the program. Well, Kirk Herbstreit made a, a tremendous point on College Game Day Insider. In case you missed it, his big gripe of Florida was that it has become an individual-driven team. Meaning... What is best for me is all that counts. I don't care about the team. I don't care about wins and losses. How are my stats looking? And guess what? That leads the team, offensively, defensively, to have cracks. To not do what they're supposed to do. Not play sound football. Not be focused. And leading to blowout losses to South Carolina. Leading to losses to Kentucky that shouldn't happen. Leading to Samford scoring 42 points in the first half in the swamp. Kirk is saying, and I think I thought he right, this is an individual-driven program, and basically said that that bowl game last year where, again, Dan Mullen said, oh, it didn't matter, our season ended after the SEC title game, that's him basically quitting on the season and accepting his players quitting. So if you're going to quit then, why wouldn't you quit now? They're 2-5 and five in the SEC. The season's over. You mean the Army, they quit against Sanford. Now, they came back and won, but defensively, they, they were just horrendous. So if you have no problem with your players quitting at different points of the season, how are they going to play hard for you? How are you going to still establish a culture and still drive a program where recruits want to come play for you? That's where the big issue, I think, for Dan Mullen in Florida is, and the reason why he won't be, he won't be back in 2022. It's not just one close game to Sanford. It's everything else that has led up to that point that kind of just had the Sanford game be the tipping point. Honestly, I'd be very surprised if Mullen is in Gainesville for 2022. Oklahoma. Biggest loss uh, of the weekend so far. Um, they lose to Baylor on the road. 27-14. I will say this. Despite losing to the Bears, right? Number 13, Baylor. It's not an awful loss on the road. The Sooners are, though, not out of the college football playoff race. Let's do a little quick, very quick history lesson. Every time Oklahoma, they made the playoff four times. Every time they made it, they've been 12-1. and They've never gone 13-0. They've never run the table. They've always suffered a loss somewhere along the way. Most times it's been in conference. So the season filled with chaos. Why would that change now? Why are we riding off Oklahoma with just one loss? I understand this is a team that's been very sloppy, and they've had a ton of close calls, right? They have not played really 
crisp football for most of the year. With that said, though, their schedule still breaks in their favor. Iowa State, another brutal loss to them, losing on a 62-yard field goal. College kickers, by the way. Let's go to Texas Tech on Saturday. Iowa State's still a tough team. That's not a walkover. They're not ranked, but it's still a tough team where you can kind of flex some muscle and get back and get a decent win. Then they're on the road to finish off the season at number 10, Oklahoma State, who should, by the way, move up this week in the rankings. So you could have top eight, top maybe seven, Oklahoma State team you're going to play on the road in two weeks. So you win that game if you're Oklahoma. You probably most likely play the Cowboys again in the Big 12 title game if you don't. Whether you play Oklahoma State or whether you play Baylor in the Big 12 title game. You're either going to have a chance that to beat a top 10 team two times in a row in Oklahoma State or ability to have revenge on a Baylor team. They know they have two losses. Still could be a top 10 team as well by that point. So you used to have Oklahoma, despite losing to Baylor, going to 9-1 in the season with just two games left. They still have a chance for two top 10 victories, both away from home, by the way. Like, one to be at a neutral site, one to be on the road, because Oklahoma State's on the road. So Oklahoma still has, their, to me, their cultural playoff hopes in front of them. And I'll say this. I'm a, you know me, big Cincinnati fan. But I'll tell you this. You have 13-0 Cincinnati. You have 12-1 Big 12 champs, uh, Oklahoma, with two wins over top 10 opponents away from home. You know where the committee's going. We're not going to say it. You know who the committee would take in that situation. So I get Caleb Williams had the worst game of his career on Saturday. And so bad they had to go back to Spencer Rattler. Bad loss, especially timing-wise this late in the season. Oklahoma's season is not over. I still think they'll make the playoff. I do. They are too talented, too good of a team to let this go down the the wayside. I think they'll win at Oklahoma State, beat the Cowboys again, or beat Baylor, get revenge, and move on at 12-1 and to the college football playoff. Oklahoma season, far from over. And finally, I want to talk about Ohio State quickly here because they had a tremendous dominant victory over Purdue. The offense was the most consistent and most deadly we have seen all season long. With that said, I've seen some talk and some chatter asking if Ohio State is the biggest roadblock to a Georgia national championship, right? Is Ohio State the team more than Alabama, more than Oklahoma, more than Cincinnati, more than Oregon, Michigan, Michigan State? Is Ohio State the the biggest roadblock in terms of getting in the way of a Georgia national title? And I'll be honest, I'm not here to say yes yet. Their offense was very impressive against Purdue. I absolutely understand that, and I get that. But this is kind of how status quo it's been for Ohio State this year. Purdue's defense is not very good. Ohio State took advantage of a bad defense. But that's what they've done all season long. The issue is for Ohio State is when they've played good teams and good defenses, they don't show up. They struggle. And you're going against an elite defense in Georgia. So you look at Ohio State's schedule. The eight worst teams they have played, they have averaged 50.2 points per game. Two of the best defenses they have played in Oregon and Penn State. And Oregon, by the way, was without their two best players. In Justin Flo, the linebacker, and Kayvon Thibodeau, the defensive end, who's one of the best, and could be the number one overall pick in the draft, one of the best players in all of college football. So you had an Oregon defense of their two best players, and a Penn State defense that offensively, they're not, they're not great, but defensively, they're really good. Two of the best um, defense they played, both at home, mind you, for Ohio State, 30.5 points per game. 20-point drop. So Ohio State has no problem beating up on bad defenses. They can take it to Purdue. 
Take it to Maryland and Indiana and Rutgers. They could score on anyone easily. When they play good defenses, they struggle. They don't play a very good crisp game. And that's what concerning for Ohio State is. Sure, I can get excited. I can look at the Purdue game and say, wow, this offense is clicking. Like, watch out, Georgia. Watch out every team in their way. I'm going to be more impressed, and I'm more interested to see how they play against Michigan State and Michigan. Those are the two games that I think will tell us whether Ohio State is truly the best challenger to Georgia or not. I would say no. I would still put Alabama as the biggest roadblock to Georgia in terms of winning a national title for the Dogs. I trust them to play well in a game against Georgia where I don't still trust Ohio State. They've showed you Ohio State two things. One, they can play really well against bad opponents. And two, they can look really mortal against good to great opponents. And you're going against a great, the greatest opponent in college football in Georgia if you make the playoff. So I'm not sitting here ready to tell you Ohio State is the team to take down Georgia or prevent that from winning a national title. I got to see it against good teams. We have not seen that yet so far from Ohio State this season. So I'm curious your thoughts. Should Steve Sarkeesian be on the hot seat? Should Texas really consider firing their head coach, their first-year head coach, 10 games in because he lost to big, bad Kansas? Who hasn't won a, a road game in the Big 12 since 2008? I was a freshman in high school. The last time Kansas won a road game in conference, I am now 27 years old. What, five years? Ooh, I'm old. Five years almost removed from college. It's been a very long time, to say the least. So I'm curious your thoughts, whether it's Facebook, uh, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We'll get your thoughts when we return here. The Chiefs, are they officially back in the AFC? We'll discuss that when the Ryan Hickey Show does return right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. I don't know why, but just feeling a Phoenix kind of day here. It is the Ryan Hickey Show with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, wrapping it up on this Monday morning. We appreciate listening, whether it's on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter, our handle at WWSRN underscore radio. Catch my show handle at Ryan Hickey Show. Both those Twitter accounts have live links on Twitter to watch the show uh, in video uh, on Twitter if you so like. YouTube, Worldwide Sports, and Eric. And, of course, our tremendous app, WWSRN. If you have an iPhone, Worldwide Sports, and Eric, if you have an Android, is where you can download the app. Catch all of our shows, not just the show, but all the tremendous shows we have on our network, Monday through Sunday, morning, afternoon, evening, late evening. We got you covered every single day of the week, all hours of the day, right here on the Worldwide Sports Network. So we appreciate you making us a part of your Monday morning, starting a week with us right here on the Worldwide Sports Network. Um, we'll get to the Chiefs here in a second, but I do want to quickly say one thing about the Rams 49ers game tonight to close out week number 10. Awful news, just awful news we received over the weekend that Robert Woods, the tremendous receiver for the Rams, tore his ACL in practice, ironically, the same day that the uh, signing of Oda Beckham Jr. was official and he was at practice. And the crazy part, too, is I don't know if you saw this. Woods hurt himself in practice, didn't think much of it, finished practice, went through the media session, didn't think of anything of it, then had some additional tests done, and that's when they found out he tore his ACL. 
Imagine tearing your ACL. We see the unfortunate happen on the field all the time. We unfortunately saw it last night. Alec Ingold of the Raiders tore his ACL, and he had to get carted off. Not many players tear their ACL and not know it. They had, not many players tear their ACL and walk off. And you see the fact that he, or you hear the fact that he not only tore his ACL in practice, continued to practice. Didn't think much of it. It's just incredible, insane. So you hope for a quick and speedy recovery for Robert Woods. But now, that makes the Odell Beckham Jr. signing that much more, I'll say, important. Now, I will be honest. I am not a big fan of the OBJ signing. I think it doesn't really make much sense for OBJ at the time. I don't think it made much sense for the Rams. Now, I will say, now with Robert Woods out, right? logically you think, oh, just plug OBJ in. Nice and simple. Nice and easy. Think with the Rams, they got to be careful here. Robert Woods, I think, is, is a special player. And with this offense specifically, where they have Cooper Cup, they have Robert Woods, they have different roles for those players. I just don't think you can plug OBJ into that role and expect him to have the same production. A lot of his specific route timing here, and a lot of it is unselfish play. That's what concerns me about Oda Beckham Jr. Unselfish play. He left Cleveland because he wasn't getting the ball. He could say he wants to be on a winner. He could tell you that he wants to be a part of a winning organization and win a Super Bowl, and that's why he wanted his ouster in Cleveland. He left Cleveland because he wasn't getting the ball enough. So even though he goes from a run-first team in Cleveland to a pass-first team in L.A., he also has to realize the ball is not still going to go his way. It's a Cooper Cup offense first. So similar to how the Browns, right, they run the ball first. They have Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt. That is a ground-and-pound team first. The Rams, they throw the ball more, but it is they kind of establish their offense through Cooper Cup, through running different routes, getting them open in different ways, finding him, you know, across the middle, on the sideline, underneath. They get in the ball and get in the ball a ton. So even though they throw the ball more, a lot of those targets are still going Cooper Cup's way. Matthew Stafford has really kind of spread out the wealth of the offense other, you know, outside of Cup to where there's no value number two guy, where they, they get a lot of receivers uh, like Van Jefferson involved and the tight ends involved and the running backs out of the backfield involved. So I don't really see OBJ going into this offense in L.A. and being a focal point of the offense. I think some weeks he'll have, you know, he'll get a ton of targets and it could be his week, but he's going to have to accept the fact that he's going to be a role player. Some weeks he'll get 10 catches, other weeks he'll get two targets. And I don't think he'll be able to accept that. The thing you have to remember here, and the biggest thing for me is, you know, it's the players don't change their stripes overnight. OBJ was a selfish player. Still is. Now, for some that works, but I don't think it works for a team that's in Super Bowl contention. Let's not forget, OBJ asked for a trade from the Browns in the offseason. I don't know about you, I think the Browns were a pretty legitimate Super Bowl contender heading to this year. Now, as we know, they got not, not gone off to the best start, 5-5. Five and five, But heading into the year, I don't think it was lunacy. I don't think it was crazy. You wouldn't be called nuts. And you said, yeah, I can see the Browns being legitimate Super Bowl contenders. I can see them being really well this year, maybe getting you know to the AFC title game. So you were in one of the best spots possible for your OBJ to make the Super Bowl. And he still said, I went out. This is before the season started. So now he goes to L.A., a team that has everything there, you know, going their way. They loaded up on every single free agent possible. They just brought in Von Miller. They brought in OBJ. They're basically the Brooklyn Nets of the NFL. Now, as we know, injuries derailed the Nets. I am no nervous that OBJ's personality, the selfishness, may rub off here and hurt the Rams more than help them. So I'm very interested to see how they 
use OBJ. I'm telling you, it will not be in the same way as just plug and play OBJ for Robert Woods and just call it a day. It's not that easy. It's not that simple. I'm excited or interested, I should say, to see if OBJ will become a team player for the first time in his career because I don't really see it happening. Tell you that we will see the debut of Odell Beckham Jr. with the Rams. They take on the 49ers. Rams should win that game. I'll go 31-14. Get the win there. Quickly here, Kansas City Chiefs, they're back. They're back. The rest of the AFC watching last night's game should absolutely be shaking in their boots because the Chiefs have finally found it out. They have figured it out. All this time, right, through 10 weeks, defense have been playing prevent defense, keeping everything in front of them, not allowing the big play. The Chiefs kept kind of banging their head against the wall, being impatient, trying to force the ball down the field, and it led to interceptions, led to inefficient offense, low point total. Last night, whether it's Travis Kelsey, whether it's Darrell Williams, Patrick Mahomes was dumping the ball off, taking with the defense game, thrown underneath, and guess what? It worked. 41 points, 400 passing yards, five touchdowns for Patrick Mahomes. He had played the best game of the season, by far. He looked comfortable. He and the Chiefs' offense look like the Chiefs' offense of old. That is bad, bad news for the rest of the AFC. I never was doubting the Chiefs, and they were still, to me, even during their swoon, even during times where they were in last in the AFC West like two weeks ago, I still picked them to be my AFC representative in the Super Bowl because no other team was separating themselves, one. And number two, they were. I thought they were going to figure it out. Like The changes they had to make were not drastic. It's not like they were ravaged by injury. Mahomes is healthy. Kelsey's healthy. Hill is healthy. Andy Reid is still a great coach. Like These guys didn't forget how to play football. They're in a slump. But I have faith they figured it out. And guess what? Last night, I think they absolutely did figure it out. And now moving forward, it's going to be a tough, tough road for any team, in my mind, the AFC, to knock them off. The Titans have gotten off to a tremendous start at 8-2. Without Derrick Henry, it's a big loss. The Bills. They smoked the Chiefs in Arrowhead. They're now trying to do it, you know, good luck trying to do it again. Ravens beat Kansas City in week number three or week two. Good luck doing it again. Chiefs offense has been kind of eh for a while now. I think last night kind of unlocked their potential. Showed you where they are still one of the best teams in the AFC. And now all those teams that were playing well, playing poorly, up and down. Right? Unable to kind of run away with the division, run away with the conference, are going to pay the price because the Chiefs are back. Bad news for the rest of the AFC, for sure, but big statement win for Kansas City. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Network. We appreciate you tuning in every single day like you do. It was a pleasure and a blast to kind of start your Monday here in week number 10. Hopefully you uh, enjoyed it. We appreciate you making us a part of your Monday. We will be back on Thursday. Get you ready for week number 11 in the, AF, uh, in the NFL. I was going to say in the AFC. Holy cow. And we will break down the NFC. Who is the best team there? Because there's five teams that separate themselves look really damn good. Right? Rams, Buccaneers, Cardinals, Packers, and Cowboys. Who's the best team out of that group? We will break that down on Thursday for you right here. So have a great rest of your week. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll talk to you on Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio.